We want to give you tonight. We want to tell you that we love you. And we want to tell you, God, that we love you in, in the way we study your word. That this isn't a box to tick. This isn't just time spent like we did our time. This is time where we are seeking for you to overhaul us, change us, perform the surgeries necessary, inspect, diagnose, correct, fix, equip, strengthen, bolster, embolden, fill us with courage and clarity. And let this time be time where we enjoy ourselves so much in your word. A time, Lord, where we just go, wow, how good is our God. And in that, Lord, teach us to get a better perspective, even on the harder times in life, as we kind of look a bit at that as well. God, I just pray tonight that this would be the best Bible study any of us have ever been to. So, Lord, we just want to commit this time to you. Bless, bless, bless tonight, I pray. And have your way. So, Lord, draw us in, captivate us, and then do your greatest work ever in us, we pray. Immerse me in your spirit. Come upon me and do through me what only you can do. We commit this time to you, redeem every second. If there be anyone who has yet to know you, let tonight be the night of their salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Now, Strange thing about a week ago, Chelsea is out of striker. And lo and behold, Bruno gets a phone call. And Bruno is, draw, is brought in. This is the dream. This is, this is the dream, baby. And he is excited and, and he slaps on the, on, the, on the dreads and out he runs you know, clips and all, and this guy is just ready. Now, if you're not a Chelsea fan, it really doesn't matter. I'm just using this as an example. This didn't really happen, or maybe it did. You can ask Bruno. That's his choice. Uh, and he gets out there, and, and, you know, and, so, and then that thing happens for 90 minutes where men run all over the place, and there is an almost after another almost. And people go, ah, ah, ah. And it's zero, zero. And it's zero, zero. And it's zero, zero. And then the other team kicks one. And it's zero, zero. And, and it continues this way. And this is it. If Chelsea wins this, they're going. And they're taking this thing beyond where they're at. They're going to start going towards the cup. This is it. And, and in that, there's this moment where all of a sudden a hat trick happens and Bruno gets it, and we are down to those last few seconds. Now, in an American sport, you have to imagine those last few seconds are like the end of any action film. There's a countdown. Everyone's like, oh, here it comes. Five, four, three, two. I've learned this when I first moved here. When it comes to you know, European football, it was like they watch, and they watch, and then everyone's like, okay. And then they go to the pub. It was like, it was, that was it. There was like, wait a minute. Is that halftime? Is that intermission? Is that interval? No, 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 they're done. 
But there it is. But the but but Bruno, on the other hand, his heart's pounding, and he and he hears. And just at that moment, he sees that spot open up, and in the back of his head, he hears dun 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 dun, and he's running in slow motion. I don't know how that works, but he's running in slow motion, and every foot's in the right place, and he's there, and the wind is blowing through his head and and he's and he's there and he's got that look because he knows now all the cameras are going to be on him so he wants to get that look yeah right i'm i'm so and he takes it and that moment comes and it's like and the kick happens and it's it! and then bruno looks at everyone and was like love me and they all run and they just dogpile him like that's love you know and it's like and he goes oh my goodness and and then he woke up and he's like oh i have to go to work now Right? And the reason is like we dream of that moment. That moment where, to be honest, if it ever has happened to you, whatever the sport is, if it hasn't happened, you can dream of it. If it has happened, it's really hard to move away from it. Forty years later, you look, and now, of course, the things were more extreme at that point. It was like, and there I was, it was just me, and it was all of them, and I was barefoot and blind, and my arm was gone, and I'm hopping on one leg, and, you know, and it's like, in the peg leg, I stand on my peg, and then I'm like, you know, I mean, it's amazing how it gets greater as we get older, right? But the reason I say that is, what if that were Christianity? What if that were our walk with Jesus? What would be that moment? What would that look like? Well, that's harder to say, isn't it? It isn't like, well, and there I was, and then I, I don't know, and then the guy was like about to do something, he was about to kill 500 people, and he turned around and said, oh, I'd rather have Jesus. You know, no, that would be way cool, but why don't we daydream about that? Because in eternity, it isn't like the Lord's going to go, oh, by the way, Bruno, this is heaven, so I do have this on infinite repeat, so you can just kind of sit here with Agnes and just watch it for, oh, wait a minute, sorry, Agnes, probably wouldn't be heaven for you if we watched it over like this in infinite repeat, but, but, but you know, anyways, the, the idea of it is it's like, we can't take that with us and go, hey, hey you guys, check me out, Peter, hey, it's cool what you all did and all that with Pentecost and stuff, but you should have seen my kick. It's amazing how, and again, I don't want to belittle that, I would rather aggrandize what it would be like to have a moment like that with Jesus. A moment like that where, well, I would like to think the moment like that would be more than kicking a ball in. A moment like that would be watching a nation turn. Could you imagine that? A moment where all of a sudden people go, whoa, that God of yours, that, he's, he's actually for real and, he's, and, he's, and you're right, the Bible's true. Well, the reason I say that is this. In the story of Bruno, in the story of Bruno, we could, uh, the reason why it's at least kind of fun to pull him into it is because we know that Bruno spent a good deal of time prepping for something like that. There was a time where Bruno took that sport very seriously, and he was training for that, and he backed it up so that the reason you daydream about that is because you've been working really hard, and the worst thing would be for, to work really hard and then have nothing really for it. The reason I say that in regards to ourselves is with Jesus is, what would that be like for us in the training? I mean, first of all, what, I mean, for me to daydream about those moments, you know, musically or athletically or whatever the case is, I fought competitively. You can imagine what that imagination looks like. It's not real, but it looks like a Quentin Tarantino film, you know. And then it's like, what would it be like musically? And it's like the weird part is I've kind of almost had those moments in my life, but... Though I've had those moments, and then you're like, well, that wasn't really as cool as the daydream was. 
But then it's like, why don't I go, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to stand in front of this many people and say, you need Jesus, and them all go, you're right. And me not go, what? Really? What? Really? You know, I mean, what would that be like? And the reason I say that is 1 Kings 18 gets there. There is a moment where one hairy belted guy, one hairy belted tishbite, stands in front of a group of people and calls 850 false prophets bluff. Consider that. And the reason I say that is those heroic moments do not happen without preparation. It isn't like all of a sudden you woke up and one day you were like, oh, wow, here's a cape and some tights. I'm going to throw these on and I can fly. Now, first of all, let me just say, if you think that's reality, get some help before you get to the top of a building. There is preparation. There is preparation for heroic moments that get to be played on infinite repeat in eternity that actually means something forever. Not just for a moment, but forever. Wouldn't you like just one of those? Wouldn't it be great if, like, back in those days when they had them on spindles, imagine if God's like, okay, well, here's, you know, Okay, here's yours. It looks kind of like this. And there's like, and then they come to, you know, and God comes to you and he's like, okay, and then there's yours. And it's, it looks like the, you know, like the, you know, the United Film Industries, like inventory, you know, it's like just real after real. It's like these great, fantastic moments. Well, here's the wild thing. We are not going to get to the showdown tonight. Oh, that's because of the introduction was 28 minutes long. I'm just kidding. But because I want to get us to what it took to get there first. Because I want you with me to daydream about a moment like that in life. Now, to be honest, if there's someone you really love, I mean really love, that doesn't know Jesus, and you do, and you really love Jesus, it would seem part and parcel to start daydreaming there too, wouldn't it? In the moment when someone you love just turns to Jesus, and you think... There's no possible way I could stay composed when that happens. I already have something in my mind already. I think, oh, I've been praying for her for so long. I'm like, that would be a heroic moment that I do. It's more than just enjoying the real. I get to enjoy the real person for eternity as as a result of that. Well... It's 863 B.C. in essence. It's roughly 3,000 miles away and the most wicked king due to date rules northern empire of Israel. His name is Achav. He is the son of a wicked man named Omri. He marries, by the way, uh, the daughter of a Sidonian psycho high priest named Ethbaal, which means I'm with Baal, uh, who murders king for the throne. The daughter, the, guy, the girl he marries, her name is Jezebel. You probably get an idea what she is like. She goes on a hiring spree and hires 850 false prophets from two different groups. One from Baal. Baal, by the way, is a, is a Phoenician and Canaanite big guy god. He's like the boss god. He's in essence the godfather. That's the idea. And he rides a bull, lives on Carmel, and throws lightning. So in other words, he's kind of like the godfather and Thor. I don't know. Anyways. And then there's Asherah, who's the Babylonian goddess. So there's a guy and a girl. She's the goddess of fertility, fortune, and happiness. We might say she's the patron saint of Las, of Las Vegas. Anyways, uh, and, and this is a time where everyone's just going mental on doing whatever they think is right, and they have no interest in God's standards. If you were there and say, this is God's word, people would look at you and go, how dare you judge me? How dare you, you bigot? 
Well, you kind of get it. That's kind of like now. Jericho, the first conquest in the promised land, now gets rebuilt against God's command. In Joshua 6:26, the foundation and the gates get laid by a man named Hiel's oldest and youngest. Uh, kind of key, because the guy Hiel, his name means, my God lives. And boy, does he. Now, it's a time when people totally abandon God. But I want you to recognize, even though it was a time when people, and I want to remind you, this was a time when God's people totally abandoned God. This wasn't just a time when the world did. It was a time when God's people were totally abandoning him. But it was never a time when God abandoned them. In this hurricane of madness, God sends his voice to his people through a hairy belted tishbite. He shows up unannounced at the word of the Lord. He proclaims control of a drought that will only end at God's command through him. Then he runs away at God's command to a distant brook called Kerit, which means the cutting. Now, I want to give you just three basic events that take place before we get to our text. The first of them is that he shows up, tells his king, it's not going to rain until I say so. God told me to tell you that. And then he runs to a place called Kerit, which means to cut or to carve or to chisel away. And there he's fed by ravens. Ravens you're probably aware of are predatory and scavenger birds. So imagine a vulture shows up with some meat in its mouth, and you're like, oh, yummy, dinner. Well, there's the idea. And they show up with bread and flesh every morning and every night. He's beside a brook, so though he proclaims a drought, he's refreshed by the brook, awaiting the next word of the Lord. But it doesn't come until the brook completely dries up. Once the brook completely dries up, the word of the Lord comes again to tell him his next move. God sends him to the most unlikely place. Remember that psycho high priest that killed the king for his throne and his horrible, wicked daughter who hires all those false prophets? They're from the land of Sidon, and that's actually where God sends them next, the land of his enemies, Sidon, the land of Jezebel. Probably the last place Ahab would imagine to look for him, by the way. And there he's cared for by a widow. She has watched her bread dwindle, just like Elijah's watched his brook dwindle. She's about to cook her last biscuit and die with her son when she meets Elijah. Meanwhile, Jezebel Jezebel has gone on a murder spree this time of the prophets of the living God, committing prophesied, if you will, with vigor and purpose. And again, Elijah now waits for the word of the Lord for his next direction, his next commandment. It's been about three and a half years since Elijah popped in the first time into the palace to plague the potentate. And again, Faithfully on time and not a moment too soon, the word of the Lord comes again. Now, that takes us to our text. Look at verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1, I'm sorry. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Eliyahu, Elijah, went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Quick question. This isn't intended to be a trick question. It's an honest one. If there's a famine, what does that mean? Yeah, if there's a famine, there is no what? Food. So the people are, in essence, starving. Yeah, that's pretty simple, right? Famine means people are starving. The land is scorched, dried and dead, caked. Now, you ever see that dry, cracked earth that comes that's like the step before desert turns to sand? I have. You're probably aware of the fact that I think it's 17 times the size of London has been on fire in California as of the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's going, from what I'm told, 
something like the size of a burra every three seconds. That's how quickly it's traveling right now. Well, anyways, if you look at the land before and after, it's almost unbelievable. It looks like the apocalypse we saw in the sky yesterday. Now, Ahav had called to Obadiah. See that in verse 3? We say Obadiah, but it's Obadiah. Obadiah, by the way, means servant of God. What a cool name. He was in charge of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, yeah, that's a real sweet one, that Obadiah had had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave. So real simple math, how many caves did he use? I'm just checking because this shouldn't be difficult. There were 100 prophets, 50 to a cave. How many caves? Two. Okay, good. All right, hello. Is this on? Okay. Uh, And he fed him with bread and water. So interesting. Uh, Don't miss the fact Elijah's been fed with ravens and then Elijah's been fed with a widow from Sidon. And these prophets, 100 of them, have been fed by the king's steward, chief butler. Ahab said to Avadiah, go to the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and the mules alive, that we will not have to kill any livestock. Does that sound weird to you? Because it really does to me. Because he is looking for grass for what? His animals. During what? A famine. Now, you get that, right? Everyone's starving to death. And he's like, yeah, I'd hate to lose a horse out here, you know. We should really go and find something. Uh, my first thought is Sicily, horse for everyone. All right. We need, I'm sorry, if you're a vegan, I don't mean that you can just enjoy the grass here. But keep the horses and mules alive. Obviously, the king is much more interested in his own stuff than he is about the people he's supposed to rule. So they divided the land between them to explore it. The king's going one way, Avadi's going the other. Ahab went one way by himself, Avadia went the other way by himself. Now, God's going to wait until this guy is by himself. Now, Vadia was on his way. Suddenly, Elijah met him. And he recognized him, and he fell on his face. Now, it would be pretty easy to, to get him, to identify him. Remember, he's the hairy guy with the belt. He recognized him. He fell on his face, and he said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? His response will be opposite of the king's, by the way. He's not going to be as happy to see him. He answered and said, It is I. Now, go tell your master, Elijah's here. And he said, how have I sinned? You are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me. And you can imagine Elijah's like, I didn't expect that response. As the Lord your God lives, that tells me something, that there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt you down. And when he says, you know, we found, we found Amelia Earhart, we found Wally, but we can't seem to find you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they couldn't find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. It shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go to Telechav, he can't find you. He's going to kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord for my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave. How many caves? Thank you. And fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here? He'll kill me! Now don't miss this. The king has basically made Elijah Jason Bourne. And he is hunting him down anywhere he can. And the problem is he's looking everywhere he possibly can. And if he goes to a kingdom and they can't find him there, he's like, you need to sign something to say, 
I really honestly looked and I couldn't find him. So what do you do when a king has a board meeting with all of the people that are bounty hunters and they're like, we've looked everywhere and he's not anywhere. How do you answer that? Someone's like, probably what happened is, and now you have to go into the world of the weird. Let's be honest. Maybe God could make him invisible. Maybe a spirit just would pick him up when we were looking for him and just boop, put him somewhere else. But any of the answers are going to be in the realm of the miraculous, let's be honest, because all natural reason is expended here. So any other answer, as weird as it is, probably seems just as feasible as another. It seems like the one they seem to have agreed upon, or at least gravitated to, was seems like when they look, God just moves them. We don't have any precedent for it, but just the same. So as you realize what's going to happen, right? He goes, this is a real cruel joke, Elijah. I'm going to go and tell him, hey, remember that guy you really wanted to kill that you've been looking for? I just ran into him. <laughs> Funny world. Small place. You know, um... He's over here, and then the king's going to go over there, and you're not going to be there because the spirit's going to move you again. And then as soon as that happens, he's going to get so angry, he's just going to kill me. He goes, you know, I'm a good guy here. I'm on your side, Elijah. I don't really need to get, I don't I need to die for this. Now, by the way, Elijah, look at his answer in verse 15. He says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. In other words, there are three things we could be confident in. One, is that there is a Lord of hosts and he is alive. My God's alive. Those prophets of Baal and Asher, those are pieces of, those are chunks of wood and stone. Those aren't living things. My God is alive. Do you know that? Because I'm sure of that. Second is, I stand before him even right now. He is with me even right now. And as sure as I am that he's alive, and as sure as I am that he's with me, I am just as sure that that king will see me today. Now, how does he know that? Because God told him. God says, now you're going to go and talk to the king. I expect that I'm going to talk to the king. So Avadiah went to meet Achav. That was all he needed. And he told him, and Achav went to meet Eliyahu. Remember when Avadiah saw me, he said, oh, my master, and he fell on his face. King's not going to be so warm. Verse 17, well, actually, he's going to be quite hot around the color. So then it happened when Ahab saw Eliyahu that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Here's a really fun word. Try this word. Hakar. Try that. Now come on, it's Hebrew, so you can't be like Hakar. Hakar. Okay, now, now think maybe like a pirate. Hakar. Hakar. That's the word here for trouble, and it means to stir and disturb. The best answer I can give you, like a great answer for that, or an example would be if you've ever seen brothers that are like somewhere right before 12 and one of them's starting to fall asleep, but the other one's not tired. Hakar happens a lot, right? He's like, hey, you sleeping? You sleeping? Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Oh, a feather. Oh, here's my sock. And you know, it's like, how close can I get my sock to his face before he smiles? You know, it's like, it's all Hakar. The reason I say that, that's the word he's using. Now, don't miss this. There is a rebellious king. Now, God had promised for what it's worth in both Deuteronomy 11.17 and Deuteronomy 28.24 that in both cases, that if we weren't going to obey, if the God's people... Now, please hear me. God never said, if the world doesn't listen to me, it's in trouble. In regards, to, I mean, obviously, eternally he does, but in regards to the shape of the world, what he says is that if my people don't obey me, the world is going to be really bad. 
What we're going to find is, when we get to the Chronicles, God's going to say, when, when, when we review again about Solomon, and he's on his, you know, his hands are raised to God, and he goes, God, this place, we built your temple. We hope you really like it. It's what you told us to do, and we did it. So please, if we pray here, where you say your heart and your eyes are going to be, would you hear us from here, from, from heaven? Would you hear from heaven your dwelling place? And would you forgive us? If that's the case, if we do stupid things because we're going to be honest, we're stupid. And if we're going to do stupid things, but we turn to you and we say, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Would you hear? Would you listen? Would you heal? And God gives this answer that is so beautiful. It's quoted often. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, where he says, if my people, listen, if my people, God speaking, who are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, if they were willing to humble themselves and pray, repent, if they were willing to turn to me with all their heart and turn from their wicked ways, I would hear and I would, I would forgive and I would heal their land. So try that one on Al Gore or whoever else tells us that the problem with the world is the melting ice caps. I'd say the problem with the world, dare I say it, is God's people. We shouldn't be, let me just say it the way I, where I come from, we shouldn't be surprised that sinners are willing to sin. We should be much more amazed that God's people aren't willing to be holy. And God really wants his people to be humble and contrite and repentant. But when you turn from God, the people who actually represent God are the troublemakers. That kind of sounds like now, isn't it? If you really took a stand for Jesus, I mean, out and just you were openly proclaiming it, who do you think would be bothered most, the unbeliever or the quote-unquote believer? Interesting, because it seems to me the more vocal bloggers against public evangelism tend to often be people that are called Reverend this or, you know, I'm a Christian. I just think that's amazing to me. Here's a king that's supposed to be a king of God's people, and he looks and he's like, troublemaker! Aha! And of course, you know what uh, Elijah says about that? He says, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever comes at me, bounces off of me and sticks to you. That's what he says. He says, I'm in trouble, Israel. You and your father's house have. I'm the troublemaker. You're the troublemaker. That's what he says. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and, not fo- and instead you followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And Chav, by the way, interesting, comes out, oh, you troublemaker. Elijah goes, you want it? Okay, you want to call him on grill? Let's just go at it. You want to go at it? You want it? Let's take it out. We are outside. You want to take it outside with me? You want to throw down? Well, guess what? You better get your army. All 850 prophets on staff because we're going to throw down. We're going to see which God's real. So tell, put that in your, you know, and then what happens? Ahab's like, okay. And he goes and he's like, he goes, go get your prophets and go get your crew and let's do this thing for real. And I love it because Ahab then sent for the children of Israel, gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Notice, by the way, Ahab actually listens. Now, hear me on this. This is the setup for one of the greatest showdowns in the history of the Bible. Where one man not an army, not a crew, not a church, not a prayer group. One man 
a tish bite. We're still not sure what that is. I'm not sure what a tish is to bite it, but this guy is it. He's hairy, he's belted, and he's going to go and stand. And he goes against the king. He goes against his army. He goes against the gal, because she actually seems to be the real fun in all of this stuff. She's the real cookie in the pie. And then, and all of their prophets, 850 on staff. And one guy, hearing the word of God, stands against them and goes, you really think I'm intimidated by you guys? It's 850 to 1. I'm really sorry. The odds are really not in your favor. Because actually it's not one. I'm with the living God. Remember the one that I stand with him and he's living and he's still with me. And I'm sure of that. So it really doesn't matter how many you get. I'm always going to be the majority. But understand something. We're going to find soon that Elijah doesn't always like that. So hear me for a few minutes here. And believe it or not, this is just the setup because this is where we'll end in the text. Because next week we get to into the we get into the ding 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 now in this corner. We get that next week. This is what we get this week is what did it take for a guy to get here? Let me ask you, could you ever even imagine, even imagine this could be you? Could you imagine for a moment you stood And by the way, dare I say, this isn't Buckingham Palace. This would be much more like the Canterbury Cathedral would be the idea. Because it wouldn't be somebody that represents the secular mass. It's somebody that's supposed to represent God's people. You say, well, we're, we're British, we're God's people. Well, the church, get the idea here. What did it take to get a guy here or a girl here? Because don't think for a moment this is just guys who do this. Read the book of Esther. It's a girl that God uses to save a whole race of people. That whole Hitler trying to kill all the Jews, that wasn't the first time. That's an old play in the playbook. Haman had tried to do that much earlier. Now, hear me on this. I'm going to give you, in, in, in the simplest sense, the three events that took place since he's left the king until now. Because each one of them, he had something to learn. Please do not miss this. And understand this, I need to share this with you because I need to hear this. Now, regardless of whether you envision yourself that way, regardless of whether you would even fantasize yourself to be that way, somehow I would assume you would expect me to be this way. And to be honest, I'm okay with that because I want to be this. Well, hear me on this. He goes to two places. He goes to the brook Karit, and he goes to Zerafath. Does that make sense? Karit was the brook, and then he goes to Zerafath with the widow. Two events take place in Zerafath, by the way. And we have our first event there at Karit. Then from there, God says, all right, now let's go down and let's go talk to the king. Now, what's interesting is it wasn't... See, understand, God, the ultimate multitasker, is doing so many things right now. He is keeping your brain in your head. He's keeping every atom together. He's keeping the earth on its axis. He's keeping things from running into it right now. He is holding everything together by his powerful world. God, by powerful word. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the reason I say that is God knows how to multitask. And when God is doing something like even making you wait, it is for a billion reasons. You ever ask God why? Do you realize, pardon me for saying, I need to hear this too, how dumb that can actually be. 
Because imagine God who has the brilliance to actually keep everything happening at the same time, knowing that one event is going to send a ripple to create billions of different things. And you say, God, give me the reason why you did that thing. And God's like, well, you better get comfortable because I'm only going to give you the first 300 million. God, I deserve an answer. It's like, look, God's like, first of all, if I really did fill your mind with all the answers, your brain would explode out of your head. Then you'd see me sooner. So maybe there's a win in that. The first place, he's gone and he stood before the king and he's had to go to the brook Kerit. And I remind you, Kerit means to carve. The beginning of his ministry starts with carving. Now hear me on this. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about you've become a member of a church. You've accepted Jesus' death on the cross to pay for your sins, your guilt, and his resurrection to become the Lord of your life, the inventor of the new part of you now, which is all of you. If you've accepted him, you handed yourself over to the greatest artist that has ever and will ever live. Have you thought that through? Have you seen what the sky looks like beyond the weird, creepy yellow of yesterday? You know? When, you know, it's like people are grabbing rakes and shovels, and I, only, I know what that means. If there's a rake and a shovel in someone's hand, zombies are somewhere nearby. Isn't that how that works? You know, but it's like, I mean, you ever see things through the Hubble telescope? I mean, and you see these unbelievable colors. You ever see the Crab Nebulae? And have you ever, I mean, just look up Hubble telescope on Google and check out what you get there. Now, here's the weird thing. That's a tiny little thing to God that is infinite for us. It is so unbelievably big, we can't even fathom it. It's like you couldn't even put a speck on there and call that the earth or even our own solar system compared to some of the things that we're seeing. And you look at these things and you look look at this unbelievable color and it tells us that God marked the universe. You ready for this? God marked the universe with this. Shaka. You know, it's like from here to here is God's like, that's the universe. Now, I, now, I have a question for you, and it's a genuine question. Has anyone told you, the scientific community tells you, that the universe is expanding? What's at the end of the universe? I mean, if like, okay, there's like, there's these balls, these stars, and all these cool little things, and then there's like blank space. That's kind of my idea of the universe. Is that yours? You know, cool balls and fire and stars and all that and lots and lots of blank space so where does the blank space end and then what's on the other side of blank space they're like that's getting bigger or maybe it's just like we didn't realize how unbelievably big the universe really is so we just have to keep adding zeros because in the end of all it's like we have to we can't wrap our heads around the idea that's infinite that's like if you keep looking that way there's no end if you keep looking that way there's no end to our universe that's infinite how big do you feel now and God looks at all that and he's like, yeah, that. Yeah, that'll do. And he flung them on a, all into their places, has a name for every one of them. And then we get to the, I mean, it's like to me, the people who study really, really big stuff and really, really small stuff, they always seem to be, the among the scientific community, the largest percentages of Christians. And I think it's because when you look and you see this gigantic stuff, you're like, wow, am I small? Who's in charge of this? And then you look at stuff really, really small, you're like, who in the world could be brilliant? Who could be brilliant enough to actually keep all of these things together? 
and you look at some of the colors, even in some of the cool little things and the brilliance of the, you know, I mean, things that we're discovering like DNA and the, this particle and this kind of thing, this God particle we talk about that's shaped like a cross and how cool is that? And, and we look at all of these things that exist and we're discovering these cool things that God's always known about. The reason I say that is, this is the creator. We started with nothing and he went that and it's that. Sunsets, song, Thai food, barbecue, events it all. And in all of that, you said yes to Jesus and he goes, you're my project now. It tells us, by the way, that we are his workmanship. It's the word we read in Ephesians. The word workmanship is the word poema. We get the word poem from it. You get that, right? The word literally means masterpiece. Don't miss that. All of the stars and their colors and their magnificence and those cool, crazy fish and jellyfish. I mean, just jellyfish alone. Whoever could have just invented jellyfish, you go, wow, you are so cool. Because, I mean, the, the way they light up and they do things. Now, I've been stung by a Portuguese man of war. That was my first experience with something from Portugal. And I was like, wow, you better steer clear of that. And I mean, Nando's helped redeem it a little bit. But anyway, you know, and it's like the reason I say that it's like these things are just cool and magnificent and okay so they poop out of their mouth but they're still cool and and it's like this and you will okay here's my life and god says yeah you think that's cool wait till you see my masterpiece i named him adam imagine that that all the angels look and go yeah stars they're kind of cool oh those jelly went over whatever but check out that guy and we're not just like adam mojo that's not what we're saying that God is chiseling. You know what he does? So he takes this block of Adam and he starts going, ka-chaw, ka-chaw, ka-chaw. And Adam goes, hey, 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 hey. I like that chunk. That was a great chunk. That chunk's me. I feel like I'm half the man I used to be. And God's like, yes. You're like, but I like that part. And God says, because you don't see what I'm replacing it with. I don't know if you've heard this story. I've said it a couple times about Michelangelo when he was carving the angels for the Sistine Chapel. And he was interviewed because they asked him, how do you do that? You take this giant just chunk of marble and somehow an angel comes out. He goes, I just genuinely believe there's an angel in there. I just need to free it from the rest of the, of the marble. In other words, he sees it in there and he's just like, okay, let's get the rest of this off. And I get to see God looking at you and going, oh, we're going to get up that pride and that self-reliance and the way that you look at that person and the way you think you are so all that here and you miss that and missed that. And you, oh, you know, and he starts chiseling. He's like, ah, oh, oh. like, these are the stuff that makes me cool. God goes, yeah, but wait till you see the stuff that makes you hot. You know, and it's like he starts doing that. And that's just the beginning. And the thing is, is that what you get is there's this place where God starts carving. And that's where Elijah was. And you know what happened with Elijah? He had to sit at a brook. And he had, listen, this is what we learn at this place. We learn, God, you really have to take care of me. There's nothing I can do to make a raven come and give me food. There's nothing I can do to say, brook, more water, please. You know, could you, could you, I don't know, add a little like iron brew to it or some lucasade or something? That'd be cool. You know, there's nothing we can do but trust. And that's what the chiseling does, beloved. The chiseling is the place where you realize that the only real thing to trust is God. And if you've got something good, he gave it. That's just the first place. The chisel. 
But I remind you, the end result is a guy that's going to stand up and watch a whole nation turn. And that's what he wants to make of you. But the first thing he wants to do is he wants to start chipping off the stuff that's going to fight him for it. They go, don't worry, God, I can do it myself. And God goes, well, I'll wait for you to fall. Because he loves us enough to do that so that we'll finally go, okay, you're right. But then we go from there and he moves to the second place. Zeravat. And as he moves to the second place, we learn so much more now. Because now he has to learn. And the second place, by the way, means the crucible. The crucible is where you stick metal into the fire and get remove the impurities. Now it's interesting because if you actually talk to someone that's called a smelter and they have these places where they do this and they take this precious metal and they put them on these big long pans and they stick them in this long fire and they take this thing that looks like a long windshield wiper and they just like this. It actually sounds like screaming. It's a fascinating thing. Now the difference, the first stuff was this, the cruddy stuff on the outside that he starts chiseling away that doesn't belong. But now he starts getting rid of the impurities inside. And what's interesting is this was the place where he had to actually, hear me on this, he had to be humble enough to let somebody else serve him. And I'll be honest, for some of us, we get that. For some of you, you're like, you know, I assume they'd be like, oh, yeah, cool, man, serve me. I'm in. But there are others of us that's like, no, you know, it's, I'm so used to doing it myself, it's actually harder to let somebody do something. Do you know that the first year we planted a church, we didn't even let anyone donate at all? I had to get rebuked by a pastor of all places from Hawaii, the Aloha State, where they're like, bro, you know, you're like robbing people, man, of like blessings. I'm like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. I was just trying to be cool. You're not cool, bro. Okay, dude. I'm sure when I tell this story later, we're going to need an interpreter. Hear me on this. He has to learn. He has to learn humility. Remember when Jesus gets down and washes the feet of his disciples, what Peter's response was? Oh, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Nope, that's not the way it works here. And Jesus goes, look, unless I wash your feet, you won't even make it into heaven. He's like, oh, well, in that case, give me a bath. You know, He's like, look, you really don't need a bath. You're already clean. You just need your hands and feet washed. And I get the idea. He's like, no, 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 Lord. This is so weird. This is so backwards. And I get the idea. We learn humility, but we learn one other thing. We learn compassion. You see, that widow up there, she had to learn. She watched her bread dwindle like he watched his brook dwindle. Dwindle. He's like, oh, I know what it's like to go, man, I don't know how long this is going to last now. And they go, well, we're dead. I know what that's like. For a stranger in a place that was the enemy's territory. But then the third event takes place. And I remind you, Zarephath has two events. The first of them was that. And I imagine for the first time that he would have looked with compassion. And I realized that, listen, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. It doesn't matter how nasty or horrible the person is. He doesn't go, yippee, they're dead. Because what he really wants is the old man to die and a new person to rise up. And that happens only through Jesus. But then after all of that, the widow's son dies. Young enough to be held in mom's arms. And she looks and she goes, have you come to remind me of my sin? To kill my son like this? Is this what this is about? 
And man, imagine a crying widow because she's losing her child. Looking at you and thinking, this is your fault, man. You know, I, I was already ready to die before you showed up. I was going to make that last meal and I already knew how to say goodbye then. I don't know how to say goodbye now. You've been providing now for this whole period of time. There's been miracles daily by this. We have not run out of bread since you showed up, just like you promised. How in the world is this happening? I don't get it. And we get to this point where God provides for us in such miraculous ways so regularly, we forget it's a miracle. We forget it's a miracle. You got out of bed today and both your legs worked, I assume. And that somehow you actually, you're like, I don't have any money, but you bought a Starbucks. Figure that one out. I mean, it's amazing how we look at it. It's like it's a miracle how that works. We live in the most expensive place in the universe. I actually get paid. I mean, people sponsor me from a place that's worth, you know, three quarters of it to the, to the pound. And somehow still bills get paid. It makes no sense. Don't look at it on the math. We go, this isn't paying anything. And then it all gets paid. It just doesn't make any sense. It's a miracle, but you get so used to it. And then something weird comes out of the field, and you're like, what is this? And understand what she's saying. She's going, is this about my sin? Are you trying to remind me of some sin? And remember, she's in the place that worships Baal. And she's like, oh, so this is about that, isn't it? Because I live in the Idleville. This is, you're just going to kill my kid, aren't you? And Elijah has to learn that God is so much bigger than this. And this is so much more important. Because he doesn't want to see anyone die like this. And he learns more than compassion. He learns possession. There was a place where all of a sudden, it isn't like these are my peeps, but it's like, you know what I mean when you take possession of something where it's like, this has that importance to me now. My family, by the way, is my family. Now look at I'll share them to a degree, but they're still my family. And I will protect them and I'll go down swinging and I would rather go down swinging than watch because they're my family and I've taken possession of that fact. I've taken responsibility for that. And the reason I say that is Elijah has to learn that because there's somewhere down there and he looks and he goes, you know what, those are God's people, God, and they're your people and I have a fire in my heart for this now because that's what it's going to take for him to go look and we need to have a showdown because these people need to realize they've been duped. They've been lied to about your stupid counterfeit gods because the real God out there should be worshipped and you're doing this. But for that to happen... We have to get the heart of Nehemiah that does, that, you know, or, or for that matter of Zerubbabel that doesn't just say, oh, those people suck. What he says is, we've sinned. This isn't just about that person. We, as a church, as a people, as your Christians, we have sinned and we've walked away from your scripture and we've made it up as we went along and we've decided your Bible says this, but the world says this and we've decided somehow that the world must be right because they have more PR, they have more press. Forgive us for that. Somewhere on the line, we have to take possession of this and not just be like mavericks out there going, well, it's all right, I'm going to heaven. What difference does it make? I mean, Elijah could be sure of that, but he's not doing that. And this is what he learns, and this is what I want us to learn because I want us to be these kind of heroes. Please hear me in our last couple minutes. Elijah's going to do something crazy. He's going to lay on that dead kid take him up to his upper room and he's going to lay on him three different times and go, God, please let this kid's soul go back to him. God, please. Please. And as long as he's not hearing God say no, he's going to keep doing it. And then the kid 
comes back to life, and that would be weird. He's alive, and the first thing he sees is like Captain Caveman laying on top of him with the belt on. He's like, oh, you know. But I imagine because Elijah had been there for a while, there probably was some quite a bit of a relationship between him and the kid and the mom. I mean, I imagine he looked, and he's like, he just is like, this is like as much of a family as I get right now. I'm going to just take care of these people. I, I care for this widow, and I care for this son, because I can see it in the way he says, it. God, did you really do this? Is this, is this really the end of this? I just get the idea. He takes it and he's like, oh. And then he goes, Mom, here, here's your boy. Take a look. He's alive. And now he can celebrate that again. And the reason I say that is God is looking at his son, his, his son, the, the, in this case Israel, and he's looking at his son's dead because of the horror of them running after these other gods. And what Elijah wants to do is the same thing for God. He wants to take these people who were repenting and saying, you're right, God, you're the real one. And he goes, God, look at here's your Here it is. Here's it. Because what she says is, because my son was dead and now he's alive, I know that God's word's the truth. I love that. Can I say God prepared us for something, didn't he, with that? Because 800 years later, almost 900 years later, God sends his own son to earth to die for your sins and mine. And somewhere down the line, and then when he raises from the dead, people go, wow, I realize God's word must be true because the son is dead and he's alive again. And he's been preparing us for it ever since then. Now look at, as we go to prayer, my first question is, have you accepted the gift of Jesus? I'm not asking again, have you gone to church? Going to church, making you a Christian is the same thing as thinking you could walk into McDonald's and become a hamburger. The bottom line is, it takes choice. I don't know. I just walked into a Bentley shop and I decided I'm a Bentley driver. Yeah, good luck with that. You know, it's funny. I walked into this wedding chapel and I even saw that guy dressed like Elvis, but I still walked out single. Yeah, it takes a little bit more than just walking in. I mean, you might walk out with Elvis. Don't recommend it, by the way. I don't recommend that at all. In the end of it all, there's a choice to be made. Have you accepted that gift? Are you giving God permission as the greatest artist to say, you know what, let this life be your canvas now. Do your greatest work ever right here. I'm good with it. And God goes, okay. And he grabs the chisel like, oh, um, do you have a smaller chisel than that to start with? You know? God shaped me gently. Is there a gently in there? And if you have, what if God started turning our heart to be like, God, let that be the heroic moment I want. When my mom says yes, when my kid says yes, when my friend says yes, when my brother or sister says yes to Jesus. Because to be honest, no kick in the world is going to be compared to that. That should be my real goal. And if that's the case, you're going to take me to Carve and then you're going to take me to the refinery and when you take me to these places, the crucible, you're going to cut it off of me the outside and you're going to burn it out of the inside and then you're going to give me this, this passion to go, oh, this is mine now. I'm going to do something with this. Hey, I don't want this to be church for you. I want this to be your church. I want you walking me like, this is my church, man. Now, that doesn't mean you're like, so I decided we're going to do this song for whatever reason. You know, it's like Daniel comes in and he'd be like, can you do Staying Alive? I'm like, no, actually, that's not going to work, Dan. Dan. Uh, just kidding. 
Uh, you know, it's like it's like you know, it's like no, man. This is this isn't just like a place we go to. This is like our thing. Check it out. It's like our family, and it's cool, and it's funky, and it's from all over the place. And we look different, and we look, and people go, "What do you have in common?" Because it ain't a lot of things I think it is. And you're like Jesus, and they're like, "Oh, that's weird." Yeah, but guess what? Investigate for yourself. See what our family's like, and what you'll realize is we actually love each other because it's our family. And we want people to know that. Hey, you want to be part of that? God's still a new adoption. He still does it. There's room at the table. Well, he may take you. Well, I guarantee you he's going to take you to the place where we realize we have to rely on him. And whether that's the wilderness for Moses, whether that's the time of running for David, or whether it's here with Elijah at the brook Hadith, you're going to learn sooner or later, God, if I have it, it's because you gave it if it's good. And then it's like, all right, God, I've got to trust you not only to provide, but I want to be humble enough to have compassion for a person that's a real, that's in the craziest of places. Because in the end of it all, I want to take possession of your people in a way that I want to stand up and actually have an indignance in my heart for people that are running around doing the wrong thing. Because, man, I'm so tired of watching people that claim to be Jesus so misrepresent him. And say, he's all we need, but then they chase after everything else as if he's nothing that they want. And as we go to prayer now, man, wouldn't it be great if God took this prayer and went, okay, let's do that. You afraid if God did that, what would happen? I think it'd be awesome. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for every believer here, myself included, God. I know that there are seasons at the Brukharit where you are carving, and there are seasons, Lord, where you put us in the crucible and you just get that impurity out of us, the stuff the world's planted in of self-reliance and me first and all that stuff, God. You just want it out of us. So get it out of us, God. And we recognize that's a fire we don't welcome, but it's a result we desire. And we recognize all this is preparation for a heroic moment. God, I pray our whole life would be heroic moment after heroic moment. And for a moment, as we're praying, would you bring to our hearts right now people that we know, that we claim to love, that don't know you, that we could be praying for them. And in this moment right now, if you've said yes to Jesus, let the Lord put people's names in your heart right now that don't know him, that you love, and lift those up right now. Would you just be, God, save my mom. God, save my dad. God, save my brother. Save my daughter. Save my whatever. You know. Do that right now, would you? God, while saints are praying like that, if there's anyone at the sound of this voice who has not said yes to Jesus, or they're not sure that they've said yes to that offer, tonight could be the night. All they have to do is say yes, handing their lives over to the greatest artist of the universe. And if that's you, pray this prayer with me right now. God, I come to you broken and sinful, guilty in my sins, but you so love me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for all of my guilt. And when he died, all of it was paid for, just like Scripture promised. And he was buried, and just like Scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. And because of that, he is living and alive and wants me. And he knows all of this. And because he was already paid for it, you've given me the choice to say, Jesus, pay and be my, be my Savior and my Lord. And I say yes. I hand my guilt to you and say, take it. 
But I also hand my future to you and say, God, make it something beautiful. It's in your hands now. You shape it. You mold it. I hand my life to you. And here I am. I'm yours in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Oh, God, you've heard us now. Now, save those we love and give us a heart for more and prepare us for a heroic life in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.